from uh, in chapter 1 of Philippians, from verse 12 to verse 30. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains, that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being you will, uh, you with, through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. There's a series of um, children's books which we're listening to as a family. They're called A Series of Unfortunate Events by Lemony Snicket. Have you read them or heard of them? They're very famous. And if, uh, if you haven't read them or don't know anything about them, Uh, They begin by telling the story of the Baudelaire orphans whose family and house is tragically lost in a fire and so they have to go and live with Count Olaf. And it turns out that Count Olaf is a pretty mean, nasty, horrible guy and all he wants to do is get their huge fortune. And then novel after novel, these three children have an unfortunate run-in with Count Olaf. A series of unfortunate events ensures and more deadly, more dangerous, more tragic than the next, and on and on the story goes. They're a curious, captivating book of misfortune, and my kids love them. And I thought, as we were reading Philippians 1 and getting to the back end of this first chapter, I thought, it could be said of Paul, perhaps, that he's having his own series of unfortunate events, one after the other. 
I mean, just listen to what's happened to him when he writes this letter. The trouble as it stands is he's gone and gotten himself imprisoned, chained, as it were, to some Roman guards around the clock. And he kept, he kept getting trouble, not just once, but on and on, staring at rights, in fact, between Jew and Gentile, the two people groups, because he was talking about Jesus, because he was talking about the cross of Jesus, which was offensive. It had caught the attention of authorities, landed him before the courts. The courts had no idea what to do with this strange man talking about a, a Jew from Nazareth who died and rose from the dead, so they put him in prison until they could work out what to do. Moreover then, some Christians around this time thought Paul had badly let the team down by going and getting himself arrested too. And so it looks like a series of unfortunate events folding into one after the other that has messed up the gospel. I mean, surely God would not allow his people to suffer like this. Surely Paul, the great church planter and missionary, he can't be missional from prison. He can't plant more churches, can he? But actually, Paul doesn't think that's the case at all. Paul doesn't think he's having a series of unfortunate events. Rather, Paul thinks he's having a series of events which are enabling the gospel of Jesus to keep on spreading. And it's into that that Paul speaks and writes these words that we've just had read to us today. The first thing we see is that um, the prison guards have, have, begun, have gotten clarity for why he is in jail. In fact, some of the guards we read later on have trusted in Jesus too. Secondly, it's not unfortunate because it's actually given confidence, a shot in the arm, you could say, to the other Christians to stand bold for Jesus as well when they see Paul's faithfulness. And that boldness and confidence is really helpful because there's always conflict. It's never far away. And for the Philippians, they're living in a conflicted city where following Jesus wasn't easy. They need godly examples and Paul's giving them one. And finally, the reason that Paul tells them this isn't just to fill a word count from his editor. He just wants to motivate them. In 1.27, he says, However, uh, whatever happens, conduct. Live worthily. Live worthy of the gospel of Christ. To put it another way, the whole of Philippians 1 is an encouragement that faithfulness to Christ is a greater prize than being comfortable, a greater prize than avoiding conflict, a greater prize than having a good reputation. And that even though life is full of change, there are actually opportunities for the gospel to go forth from them. And is it not true in our own life as well that when there is sickness or a job change or we have a run-in with old friends, there can be hard, frustrating, scary moments even. But are there not also ways that God can use for his glory and his mission as well? Paul wants to encourage them, these Philippians, each in their own trials to adopt that same outlook. And he says it really clearly in verse 28 and 29. It's been granted to you to, on your behalf, not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for him too, since you're going through the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So let's explore that today. I pray you'd be encouraged as we leave, that, that you would see that in front of you, perhaps, are great opportunities for the gospel, even if it doesn't feel like it when you walked in today. So let's see how Paul's own circumstance have given clarity and confidence to those around him. He begins in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. 
You can imagine that, I mean, if you've been in isolation at any time in the last year, it can be a frustrating thing, especially if you've had to do it back to back and you haven't actually had COVID. You can imagine Paul, who's now isolated in jail, I mean, not able to plant churches, not able to go out and preach the gospel to new cities and towns. You would think he'd be stuffed and stifled and feeling like the gospel is not advancing. The Philippians are aware of this and are cautious. Is this happening to you, Paul? But Paul doesn't think it's the case. He wants them to know that what's happening to him is advancing the gospel right from there. Some of us are going through change right now. Some of us have great change anticipated in the year later on. Lots to consider. And amongst all the thinking, all the planning that you're doing in your life, may I put it to you right now, in a world that evaluates everything with a what's best for me attitude, that perhaps you would consider how the gospel gives us another line of sight, another line of thought or consideration, to ask the question, what's best for the advancement of the gospel? What do my new circumstances mean for the sake of Jesus and his church and his people and his mission? How does God's agenda change and shape my outlook and what I see and do in this season of life? Because Paul explains two reasons why being imprisoned has actually helped the cause of the gospel. In his instance, he says it's become really clear to non-Christians why I'm here. In verse 13, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard, I'm in chains for Christ. The palace guard was 9,000 troops rotating through Paul. And as the, the prisoners, uh, the, the guards, sorry, saw Paul, they'd go and they'd spread word, there's this really strange man in prison at the moment. He was going viral in the first century Rome. But instead of saying, I'm innocent, tell the next guard I'm innocent, Paul was doing something totally different. Every guard comes in and they hear about Jesus. And they know that he's here because he's talking about a Jew called Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, who died, who rose from the dead. And Paul's a herald, a proclaimer of the news that in Jesus, evil and death has been overcome. And that one day he'll return to make a right judgment about you only through faith and repentance in him. And the next shift happens and they hear the same message. And while Paul was chained, he realized the gospel is never chained. Or to say in our words today, the gospel never isolates. It brought clarity to those around him. Secondly, his imprisonment also gave confidence to other Christians. Next verse. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters, having become confident in the Lord, and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. There's this groundswell of confidence happening as Paul's in prison. Confidence in the Lord, not themselves. Strengthened by Paul's example to trust Christ in all situations. And I saw this among you last year, and still to this day. We read together that Sam Chan's book, How to Talk About Jesus, without being that guy. In my conversations with you, I keep hearing how Sam's theology of how we should talk about Jesus, live as a Christian, how helpful it was to see some examples of his life on the ground, and how you have been able to emulate or attempt to some of those examples as well. Sam was giving us a shot in the arm for mission in Australia in the 21st century. You were confident, bold, because someone was giving you an example of what it could be like. And so too, when Paul was in prison, that was happening to the Philippians. 
Yet for all the clarity and confidence, Paul knows there's a small group that aren't too thrilled that he's in prison. There's a small group that don't see his situation as advancing the gospel. In verse 15 to 18, there's conflict between Paul and other preachers, and as a result, his reputation is taking a beating. Have a look at what it says. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Today we might say he's not just losing followers, but he's getting bad comments on all his posts as well. But notice how Jesus influenced Paul's reaction to his reputation taking a hit. Paul is actually kind, and he puts first things first. He says, some preach Christ. These people are not heretics. These people are not changing the message of Jesus at all. He can give them credit where credit is due. But it's very clear that these people have a poor theology of God's sovereignty. For these select few he's talking about, position and status is better and more beautiful than the beauty and advancement of the gospel. They don't grasp the greater prize of faithfulness to Christ. For them, it's quite simple. God cannot work or bless or be useful if your circumstances are like Paul. They have a lopsided view of God's faithfulness. They think that blessing is a sign of God's favor and comes when life is good and easy. When life is bad and hard, it means you have sinned. It means you need more faith. It means you need to do better and try harder. Therefore, Paul has failed in the gospel because he's in prison. The trouble is, you look at the cross of Jesus and all of that just falls apart. God works in all things, from a prison cell to the mixed motives of these people for his glory. Look at what Paul says in some of the most confronting verses in this book. They're preaching Christ out of wrong motives. They're slandering Paul. And he says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. What does it matter they slander me? They preach Jesus. And in that, I rejoice. I I think Paul is so aware of his own sin and history, so aware of God's holiness, that he knows all too well that every single human has mixed motives at times. You see, Paul will pull you up very quickly on your view of Jesus, on salvation by grace alone. But if you preach that and you don't like him, what does it matter? And I think that's very confronting and helpful today when there are so many different styles of church. Do you rejoice when you hear of people coming to faith in Jesus, like we heard in the Compassion video, not our church, other side of the world, maybe not your preferred style of church either, but one that Jesus has faithfully preached at? Do you rejoice in that? Can you rejoice in that? Paul rejoiced in this, can we? Moreover, he rejoices that God is at work, even in an unknown future. Have a look at 18 and 19. If you don't realize he's rejoicing, he says, Yes, I'll continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, 
what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. There are two ordinary means of grace that Paul gets great joy from. Those praying for him and the Spirit of Jesus. You see, Paul gets the sovereignty of God. It's compatible with the jail cell and the prayers of his people. God's sovereignty should never lead us to apathy or assuming that he has left us. It should, as Paul explains, lead to assurance. Because Paul's confidence is that he will be delivered. Now, delivered here could mean either physically, like getting out of prison, or, as I think he's implying, it's salvation and vindication before God. In verse 28, he says the same thing when he's talking about the Philippians' salvation to come. In 2 Timothy 4.18, in prison again, Paul says this, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely, deliver me, the same word, to his heavenly kingdom. Regardless of how the trial turns out before Caesar, God will vindicate Paul from all this mess. And that's what the assurance of God's sovereignty does in the real world. It enables great joy when people pray. It gives confidence that the Spirit of God is in us and with us. It knows that we will be delivered from all the trials and suffering of this life. Maybe not tomorrow, but one day we will. And then, in 20 to 26, it gives a great hope here and now. I eagerly hope, Paul says, and expect, I will not be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For me, to live is Christ, and die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, that will mean fruitful labor. What shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn. I desire to, to depart and be with Christ, that's far better, but it is, it is more necessary that I remain in the body. I'm convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. You see, Paul's concern is that in prison or when facing death or being released, Christ would be exalted in his body. He says to live is Christ and die is gain. And Charles Spurgeon calls this the gospel riddle. Because death is no gain, it's profound loss, isn't it? But this is where the gospel shines. Gain, in, in Paul's uh, vocabulary and when he talks about this word, mentions at one other time in Titus 1.11 talking about money, gaining money. But here, he says, I'm gaining something greater than wealth. He says, being with Christ Jesus is far better. That's the gain he has in mind. Because death doesn't interrupt his career as an apostle. It's not a downgrade. Death doesn't stop God's kindness to him. It enhances it. I mean, who wouldn't want to have Jesus wipe away all your tears, hold you close, experience the joy of the fullness of life with no more sin, no more pain? Oh, that's why it's so much better. But what's so striking, though, is that Paul's heart is deeply tied to other believers. In verse 24, it is more necessary that I remain. He doesn't say, I need to remain because no one else can do gospel work. He's not operating out of a superhero mindset here. Rather, he's convinced that if he remains, it will increase their joy in Jesus, their progress in the faith. The longer he's alive, the more he can invest into Christians to encourage them, to motivate them towards the joy that's in Jesus. He's not being legalistic here. Why would I remain on this earth? So that you can actually find pure joy in Jesus... And keep moving one step closer to Jesus your whole life. That's what I want for you. 
The longer he's alive, the more he can do that, which means to live is Christ. This is Paul adopting an attitude that says, what is best for the church? And that's the same attitude Jesus had when he died, is it not? Not what's best for himself. More concerned with others, more concerned with the people of God. After all, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, despising its shame. Which makes us pause and reflect. What are our aspirations in life? Is it the job? Is it the house? Is it the renovations in the house? Is it the kids? Is it the grandkids? We need to ask in those things. Sometimes they squeeze at the edges of living for Christ. And the tendency that we have, and it doesn't happen instantly, but you'll find if you reflect, and as I found in, and in our community group, we had this discussion last week, that those things pile up over time and they demand more and more attention and we realize the gospel of Jesus is being pushed to the side and we end up living and operating a way to become worthy through my work. I start to let my home and my house define me and I end up not living worthy of the gospel because I've just put the gospel aside and it's become squashed with other things. Which is actually Paul's main point in this whole section. In verse 27 to 30, he's very concerned with the conduct. He says, whatever happens, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is the thrust of chapter 1 and for the rest of the letter. And it's joined with the phrase, the gospel. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. It means that we believe and live and conduct ourselves that promotes the gospel of Jesus. As I say to my kids, we live in a way that makes Jesus look as wonderful as he is. But don't stress too much about that, not feeling like you're good enough. Because Paul's quick to say, conduct yourself worthy of the gospel, not for the gospel. We live out what has been given to us in Christ. Taylor Swift is a performer, a very famous musician, and she said um, she got an honorary doctorate, and she gave a speech. And she said, the good news is that you have to find yourself and it's totally up to you, said Taylor Swift. And then she said real quick, but the bad news is it's totally up to you. And it's this great echo of our culture's longing to create meaning, purpose for ourselves. So many options, but actually so much pressure. And the gospel of Jesus is so good because in him, in Jesus, the incredible pressure and fragility of finding ourselves is actually offered to us from a loving God. You see, we live, we live at all times, in all places, in all ways, as one already safe in Jesus. We can operate out of being loved and accepted, not for his love and acceptance. We can live as someone who belongs to Jesus, made worthy because Jesus has made us that way. And even though some of us today feel like we are living, you are living through a series of unfortunate events, Philippians 1 is not meant to push you down further or make you feel guilty. It's to lift you up to remind you who Jesus has made you in him. That living worthy is something that Jesus makes us. So let me end by pulling on a few thoughts from Paul. What he said to see what it looks like to live worthy today in light of these verses. The first thing is that we live worthy when we stand together united in Jesus. Verse 27. 
as gospel partners, we have each other's back. We point one another to Jesus and his grace. Do not devalue the significance of unity, encouragement, and joy that we can be to one another. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was in a, a, a POW camp in Nazi Germany. And he wrote a book. And in this book, and the name escapes me, but I'm sure you'll not remember it in just a moment and tell me, um, he says, it's on discipleship. Anyway, the hills know it because they told me about it years ago. He says, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. And here's the kicker. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. The more that I go into life, says Rebecca McLaughlin, the more I realize that every Christian is a struggling Christian and that we need help from brothers and sisters who know our needs and vulnerabilities. We stand together united in Jesus. We're gospel partners. We have each other's back. That's how we live worthy. We live worthy when despite all the different church backgrounds we come from, we think back and rejoice that the gospel is preached. When you think back to the other churches you've been a part of, and I know many of us did not come from Trinity City and to Mobbury and to Grove in a church part. We've been to lots of other churches in our life. And when you think back, and this is a struggle for me as much as you, what's your default mindset? Do you moan and groan about all that was wrong and the people and how things were out of place and it wasn't your style? Or do you give thanks that in that church, despite all of that, Jesus was preached and made much of? What does it matter? As long as Jesus is preached, it does not have to be your style. It does not have to be your thing. Rejoice that Jesus was preached. And if he wasn't preached, pray that he will be. We live worthy when despite all the different backgrounds, we rejoice that Jesus was preached. We live worthy when we adopt an outlook that says, what has happened to me and is happening to me can advance the gospel. When our youngest daughter was uh, second trimester, however many weeks that is, 20? I can't remember. Trimester. Three. I'm not good at math. Tyson, help me. Math teach. I'm asking a boy who's not married about pregnancy. This is not good. Anyway, <laughs> second trimester, right? Okay, just think that. Second trimester, Emily was in Natasha's belly or womb, um, and... Natasha was diagnosed with CMV, and uh, it had crossed the placenta. And it was a whole lot of crazy, and Natasha was pumped full of medication and drugs. If you don't know about CMV, then Google it. Um, so much uncertainty. And even today, Natasha's body is still affected by what happened. But in that, Natasha met a lady called Nicole. And if you've ever been to a specialist appointment... You don't get to pick, really. You just kind of get told, you will go here at this time, and you will go there at that time. And for that second period of the trimester into the third, every single specialist appointment she had with the obstetrician and the um, infectious diseases expert, before or after her, every single time was a lady called Nicole that had the same issue. And over the course of however long the semesters go for, trimesters go for, Natasha got to talk and know, hey, I've seen you before. And over time, Natasha could talk to Nicole about Jesus 
And she could say things like, hey, it's really hard, isn't it, with what's going on inside of us? Um, Can I pray for you? And me and my husband will pray for you and your husband too. And it kept going on and on and on. And eventually, um, they followed each other on Facebook, as you do, and after their child was born, they went to church in the Colin Glen and trusted in Jesus too. Because in those moments, Natasha could share the hope of Jesus just bit by bit. And when you frame your circumstance through the lens of advancing the gospel, it creates a reason for joy and hope beyond what's happening. Yes, there was real pain and suffering when we went through all that with Emily, and still do at times. This doesn't take away the real pain and suffering that we face in those trials. We faced so much uncertainty with Emily's health, and we still do face that. But our hope rests in the future when Jesus will wipe away all our tears. And until that time, we cast our burdens on God, because he, as Lynn said, he keeps them in a bottle. He knows that every tear is precious to God. And we know that he's with us in our distress. And in each moment, we want others to know that too. And we look for those gospel opportunities. And this gospel outlook does not assume either, as Paul realized, that slandering, those slandering Paul, sorry, doesn't assume that health, wealth, and prosperity mean God's blessing and favor. Jesus died at the hands of evil men, forsaken by God on a cross. Jesus understands the harshness of life as one who experienced loss and grief and pain all on his own. Yet he's right with us. There's this moment in Matthew's gospel, the biography of Jesus' life, and one of Jesus' followers is put in prison like Paul. But this Jesus' follower does not have this, this mindset quite right. I think we can think of Paul as a bit of a super apostle and he'll say things about that. He's not, but there's this man who follows Jesus, got put in prison, put in prison, and he faces moments of doubt and uncertainty. He's not confident. And here's what John, it's his name, says about Jesus and what Jesus says in reply. Matthew 11, 1 to 3. When Jesus had given instructions to his 12, he moved on and began teaching and preaching in new towns. Now when John heard in prison the Christ was, what, the, what the Christ was doing, he sent messages through disciples and asked Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Do you see John's doubt and uncertainty? You remember, John baptized Jesus. John declared, you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then John gets put in prison and he says, Jesus, are you really the one that we're expecting? Because my agenda and your agenda have really, like, I've double booked something or you've, you've booked me in for an appointment I didn't expect because I'm in prison. And maybe I should just wait for the next Messiah because it looks like from my life circumstance that the Messiah is not actually messiahing as he should. Is Jesus that valuable if I'm in all this mess? And here's what Jesus says in verse 4 to 6. Jesus replied to them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. What does Jesus give John? A vision of Jesus working in all things. God's kingdom is advancing from prisons, healings, the poor being told there's good news in the life to come, and assurance. Blessed is the one who belongs to him and does not turn away into sin. John, 
God's going to use what you're doing in prison. The Philippians, God is going to use you in your struggle. Paul in prison, I get it. God's going to use that for the advancement of the gospel. You and me, God's going to use your life for the advancement of the gospel too. Today and tomorrow and next week and whatever happens in the future. And so may you have the assurance that to live is Christ really is better. May you have the confidence to know that in belonging to God, you are loved and he does love you and he's with you. And more than your comfort is the advancement of the gospel. Yet God comforts you in all your affliction in Christ. So maybe over coffee today, you have your own story of how you've seen Jesus work in all things for his glory. Why not share that? Why not encourage one another with Jesus as we celebrate and gather and proclaim and talk about him later? Let me pray and then the band's going to come up and we will sing. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the uncreated God made living human flesh and you know life and the pressures and the pain and the suffering as one going through it yet who endured the cross and despising all the shame, was raised to life to forgive and restore us and make us new. And that's our hope. So God, be the comfort, yet give us the clarity to be bold for Jesus in our life too. Whatever that looks like and whatever circumstance, work for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.